Ladies and gentlemen, welcome back to another episode of Anthology of Horror. I'm your host and your narrator, Spring Heel Jack. And today, I will be bringing you part two of the Jesse James saga. That is, Jesse James, the outlaw, and not Jesse James, the guy that was fucking around on Sandra Bullock. And, we left off last time, having covered Jesse and Frank James dodgy Civil War career and uh, a lot of the atrocities and war crimes that were committed in the area in which they grew up. So we're going to pick up immediately after the Civil War and uh, the years that followed. Because remember, Jesse was fucking young for the Civil War. He was a, he was a kid. He was 15 or 16. And uh, Frank was 18, I think. So, post-Civil War, since Jesse's family lost the, the farm... Uh, for their participation in the massacres of Union troops and civilians. I think that's a pretty fair deal. He was living in Kansas City, Missouri with his aunt in 1865. And he fell head over heels madly in love with his cousin, Zerelda Mims. As if there weren't enough fucked up stereotypes going on already. God damn it! If anybody's gonna have sex with my cousin, it's gonna be me! So, um, I actually learned recently that incest is illegal. Don't... Not because... (laughs) I just didn't know that it was illegal. I wasn't looking into the laws for uh, my sake. I was just curious. When I was researching this, I realized how weird that sounds. Make of it what you want. I don't fucking care. (laughs) Uh, Zerelda's mother was the sister of Robert James, who was the Honorable Reverend Robert James, Jesse James's daddy, and that made them blood first cousins. Z, as she was called, much like his mother, was actually named for Jesse's mother. However, it did not stop the pair from beginning to court. Ugh. Gross. He was known as a very reliable young man, always dressed sharp, read his Bible, and regularly attended church. He never swore, and he never took the goddamn Lord's name in vain, preferring, when he was angry, to make up his own swear words. Fucking nerd. His favorite was Dingus, which his brother Frank quickly nicknamed him. Ugh. I don't know how to feel about any of this. With the war finally over, Frank and Jesse turned to outlawry, claiming to have been forced into a life of crime because their family had been persecuted during the war. Frank and Jesse quickly rose to becoming the leader of a band of outlaws, which included the younger brothers, Jim Reed, and a whole slew of other ex-Confederate soldiers. The younger brothers are the unsung other guys in this story. I feel like Cole Younger and the squad... Uh, kind of didn't get their fair share of history. But oftentimes they're credited with the founding of this gang, and I kind of like the Younger Brothers a little bit. You'll see why I like them. So, this is a quote from Cole Younger. I'm a bonded highwayman. Cole Younger is my name. Through many a temptation, I've brought my friends to shame. For the robbing of the Northfield Bank, they say I can't deny, and now I am a poor prisoner in Stillwater Jail. I lie. 
Oh, my mistake. That's an excerpt from a ballad written by Cotton Davis Woodville in 1941. Lame. A lot of nerds in this episode already. The infamous Younger Brothers of Jackson County, Missouri, were sons of a prosperous slave-owning family. They would grow up to become some of the most well-known Civil War guerrilla fighters and most well-known outlaws in history because of their relationship with Frank and Jesse James to that helped create the James-Younger gang, much like a married, <laughs> hyphenated last name of a marriage, James-Younger gang. The four brothers, Thomas Coleman, James Harden, John Harrison, and Robert Ewing, were from a large family of 14 fucking children born to Henry Washington and Bushiba, Bushiba, Fristo-Younger, Bush-Tiba, Bushiba. A fucking hillbilly name. Yeah, but Henry came to Kansas City, Missouri area from Kentucky where he met his wife, the daughter of a prominent farmer in the area. Soon they were married. They settled on a farm and they began to crank out the babies. Henry was quickly successful in farming and began to accumulate quite a bit of land, as well as expanding into other business endeavors, which included... Uh, earning a contract as a mail agent with the federal government. I believe that means postal worker. The many children of the prosperous Henry Younger were very well educated and lived a great life up until the time that the major strife began to break out in the area during what would be known as the Kansas-Missouri Border War and what the rest of the country would just lump into the American Civil War. Kansas, established as a free state, was in constant conflict with its neighbor Missouri that was primarily populated by slave-owning plantation-type families. Despite the fact that Henry owned a couple of slaves, he was a Union sympathizer and believed that the Union should be preserved and that slavery should be abolished. Oddly progressive for the area. His beliefs, however, would not stop the raids on his farm by the Kansas guerrillas, which were referred to, as we talked about earlier, as Jayhawkers, because they were in support of the Union. During these raids, his stock and wagons would be stolen regularly and his property damaged. The actions began to turn his sons against the Union Army, and more specifically, against the Kansas guerrillas in particular. After watching the violence for years, Cole Younger went against his father's beliefs of pacifism and sided with the Confederates, becoming a guerrilla himself, and also going against his father's beliefs of which side needed to win. Under William Contrill, he signed up. Good old Quantrill. When his father was killed by a detachment of Union military men in July of 1862, seemingly for no fucking reason other than he was around, Cole's anger fired up even further against the Union and the Kansas Jayhawkers. On August 21st of 1863, he participated in the notorious raid against Lawrence, Kansas, where some 200 men and boys were killed and the town was ransacked and burned. In 64, Cole's brother James also joined up with Quantrill's band and Cole moved on to serve in the regular Confederate Army under General Lee. He was soon made a captain and led his men into Louisiana and later into California, where he remained until the end of the war. Cole returned to his home in 65, but in the meantime, his brother James had been captured by Union troops in the same ambush that resulted in Quantrill's death, and he was sent to Alton Prison until the end of the war. Cole and James returned to the family farm to find it in ruins and the once profitable business long gone. Although brothers John and Bob had done their best to maintain the farm, the ravages of war had taken their toll. An embittered Cole continued to associate with his old war comrades, and in the midst of the tumultuous reconstruction in Missouri, 
some former soldiers turned gun-for-hire outlaws, claiming to be taking revenge against the Yankee capitalist banks and railroads, um, formed the James Younger Gang, which included the Jesse James and Frank James, as well as many other ex-Confederate soldiers that were furious with how everything had gone, and rightfully so. Jesse was able to justify many of his actions by his hatred of the industrializing North, feeling as if he were contributing to the fight through his outlaw activities alone. Uh, they began in 1866. The gang started to rob their way across the western frontier for the next 15 years. Incredible. The first James Younger bank robbery occurred on February 13th, 1866 at the Clay County Savings Association Bank in Liberty, Missouri. And it deserves to be noted that the men that became part of the gang were men that had served with Jesse and Frank and they were kept together by one of the commanding officers that immediately after the war ended said the war never ended and they continued to harass the Republican uh, troops and federal soldiers that were stationed around the country and around their area so they were around, they were a pain in the ass and they were still frosty and the guy that kept the gang going in the downtime was named Archie Clement so as I was saying the bank was owned by Republican former militia officers who recently conducted the first Republican Party rally in Clay County's history. However, during the robbery, an innocent bystander, a student named William, or still a student of William Jewell College, which James' father had helped to found, ironically, was shot in the face on the street during the gang's escape. It remains unclear whether Jesse and Frank took part because it might have just been their old crew, meaning the Raiders. After their later robberies took place and they became legends, they were credited with a whole fuckload of things that they didn't do. It had been argued in rebuttal that James was still at the time bedridden after being shot in the chest. No concrete evidence has surfaced to connect either brother to the crime or to rule them out. If it's anything like the uh, Billy the Kid story, they probably weren't even there. This was a time of increasing violence, though. Governor Fletcher had recently ordered a company of militia into Johnson County to suppress all of this guerrilla warfare that was ongoing, meaning Archie Clement, the guy that was still commanding the Raiders even after the war. But he continued his career, Archie Clement did, and harassment of the government uh, to the extent of taking the town of Lexington, Missouri on day of the election in 1866. Unfortunately for him, shortly afterwards, the state militia shot Archie dead at an event that James wrote about with bitterness a decade later. The survivor of the Clement gang continued to conduct bank robberies over the next couple of years, though their numbers dwindled through arrests, gunfire, and lynchings. They later tried to justify the robbing of the banks, and they were just small local banks, keep in mind, with local capital, and they weren't part of the national system, and... That was the object of popular discontent in the 1860s. If they robbed the bank in Richmond, because in that particular robbery they had killed the mayor and they killed a couple other people in town. And it wasn't fully known if Jesse or Frank James was at that one either. But several years later, eyewitnesses positively and empathet empath empathetically emphatically <laughs> identified James and Frank emphatically as being among the robbers in 1868. Or in 1867, rather. And in 1868, though, is when they allegedly joined the gang. 
uh, robbing the bank in Russellville, Kentucky. However, the James brothers did not become famous until December of 69, when Jesse and most likely Frank robbed the Davies County Savings Association in Gallatin, Missouri. The robbery netted very little money, but it appears that Jesse shot and killed the cashier, who was a man named Captain John Schitz. Just kidding, his name was Captain John Sheets. Uh, who, when Jesse mistakenly believed him to be a man named Samuel P. Cox. Uh, and Samuel P. Cox was the military officer that had killed Bloody Bill Anderson during the Civil War. Jesse's self-proclaimed attempt at revenge and the daring escape that he and Frank made through the middle of a posse shortly afterwards put his name in the newspaper for the first time. The story that I read about the, uh, the fucking revenge shooting was brutal. Let's see if I can find it. But despite their criminal and often violent acts, James and his partners were adored. In 66 and 67, John Newman contributed to the fame of the outlaws by writing glorifying articles and dime novels, singing their praises. Journalists eager to entertain Easterners with tales of the Wild West exaggerated and bullshitted the gang's heists, often casting James as a contemporary Robin Hood. While James did harass railroads, executives who unjustly seized private land for the railway, modern biographers note that he did it for personal gain only. Any humanitarian acts are made up. In fact, they could be ruthless. And this is, here's that story. On December 7th, 69, the gang held up the Davies County Savings Bank in Gallatin, Missouri. The teller, a man by the name of Captain John Schitz, was a former Union officer who is said to have been involved in the death of old bloody Bill Anderson. Jesse hated him and shot the man in the back of the head. When clerk Willem McDowell ran for the door, he too was shot but survived the whole affair. Uh, they only made off with $700, but a $3,000 reward was placed on their heads. They have a picture of Jesse James' reward poster. This motherfucker looks just like Vanilla Ice. <laughs> Jesus. Stupid-ass chin beard and all. Vanilla Ice. By the early 1870s, robbing banks was getting riskier as the banks increased their security and, with time, locked the vaults. They started to do that now. But it didn't slow the gang down they turned to stagecoach and train robbery instead. The James Younger gang robbed their first train near Adair, Washington, or Adair, Iowa, on July 21st of 1873. During the robbery, they wrecked the Chicago, Rock Island, and Pacific Railroad, the train, and overturned the engine. The train engineer died in the accident, and the gang made off with $3,000 from passengers and funds retrieved from the express car doesn't seem worth it to me man three grand is shit even even with the inflation three grand is shit by 74 jesse james crimes were a chief rash on the dick of the missouri campaign uh, and whether or not to suppress outlawry so that the capital and immigration can once again enter the state needed something needed to happen but nothing was done so his raids continued and it was the bigger dick rash on the state's dick for long times to come and after nine years of courtship, Jesse married his cousin, finally, Zerelda Mims, on April 24th, 1874. The ceremony was performed by Methodist minister William James, who, keeping it all in the family, as was the custom, Jesse's uncle, 
and they held it in Kansas City. While Honeymoon, with his bride and first cousin Z on the Gulf of Mexico at Galveston, Texas, a reporter from the St. Louis Dispatch did what the Pinkertons had failed to do, and that was track down Jesse James. Pinkerton Detective Agency were private goons that worked for the railway. I believe I have a little more on the Pinkertons. Yes, the Adams Express Company turned to the Pinkerton National Detective Agency in 74 to stop the Younger James Gang. The Chicago-based agency worked primarily against urban professional criminals, such as the James Brothers, as well as providing industrial security, such as strike-breaking. Oof, these fucking wads. I'm, I'm a union member, so this uh, these guys are the enemy. <laughs> because the James Younger Gang received support by many former Confederate soldiers in Missouri, they eluded the Pinkertons, who I'm sure were busy looking for Jesse and Frank under each other's ball sacks. Joseph Witcher, badass name, an agent dispatched to infiltrate Zerelda Samuel's farm, shortly afterwards was found dead. <laughs> Two others, Louis J. Lowell and John Boyle, were sent after the Youngers. Lowell was killed by two of the Youngers in a roadside gunfight on March 17, 74, fatally shooting John Younger before he died. A deputy sheriff named Edwin Daniels was also killed. Damn. Alan Pinkerton, the agency's founder and leader, took on the case as a personal vendetta at this point. He began to work with former unionists who lived near the Jesse James family farm. On the night of January 25th, he staged a raid on the homestead detectives threw an incendiary device into the house which exploded and it killed James' younger half-brother, the half-slave guy, Mark Archie, and blew off one of the arms of his mother, Zerelda Samuel. She was allowed to stay in the house, I guess, and Jesse and Frank got kicked out after the Civil War. Afterwards, the Pinkerton denied that the raid's intent was arson. Did these guys just turn into the ATF or what? Holy fuck. This is like the Waco thing all over again. Or pre predating the Waco thing. However, biographer... Ted Yeatman located a letter by one of the Pinkerton agents in the Library of Congress in which the Pinkerton agent declared his intention to burn their fucking house down. Well, fuck a doodle do, man. The raid on the house outraged many and did more than all of Edwards' columns to create sympathy for Jesse James. The Missouri State Legislature only narrowly defeated a bill that praised the James Younger brothers and offered them amnesty. Fuck. Allowed to vote and hold office again, former Confederates voted to limit reward offers that the governor could make for fugitives. <laughs> this extended a measure of protection over the James Younger gang. Only Frank and Jesse previously had been singled out for rewards larger than the new limit. Wow, I would have been flattered. Personal worth. So once again, in June of 1874, Frank two found himself a woman to marry. Uh, I don't think he was related to her, though, so I imagine Jesse disapproved a little bit. Her name was Annie Ralston in Omaha, Nebraska. Jesus. Though the brothers settled down for a time with their new brides. Oh, God, I hope they weren't swapping. The gang was blamed for almost every bank, stagecoach, train robbery, old man shitting his pants, or hiccuping train engineer that occurred anywhere in the West. Zarelda, the ever-protective mother, 
began her own public relations campaign, spreading the folksy tales about the James Gang and their roles as Robin Hood figures stealing from the rich and giving to the poor. In 1875, as I said, Pinkerton became so mad at the agency's failure to arrest even a single member of the gang. The agency had been hired in 71, and he, he became so mad that he took it on personally. It's cute. The Pinkertons are still around today. Um, what? They're... I mean, everything's privatized. We have privatized armies. We have privatized prisons. Why wouldn't we have privatized detectives in an agency instead of just, like, P.I.'s? Essentially what they are is just a squad of PIs, so they're unaffordable and they don't get much done, or they get way more done than you expected. Or they just follow your spouse around. I know what PIs do. Uh, okay. In January of 1875, a Pinkerton agent named Jack Ladd was posing as a field hand at work on the farm across the road from the James Farm. It belonged to a neighbor named Dan Askew, and it served as a hideout for the Pinkerton spy. One afternoon, the agent thought he spotted Jesse and Frank at the farmhouse, though they were still miles away. So on January 26th, they surrounded the farmhouse, they tossed that bomb in. It was supposed to be a smoke bomb, apparently. Uh, and it was unfortunate that Archie, the half-brother, thought it was a loose stick from the fire, so he tossed it into the fireplace, which forced it to become an incendiary device. It wasn't their intention to burn them to death. It was their intention to smoke them out. But the young boy died, and like I said, it blew off Zerelda's hand. Indirectly, she had it amputated. And contemporary newspapers reported that at the time, it was a bomb, and the public was enraged. Although it's still unknown who did it, the Pinkerton spy, coincidentally, was found with two bullets in his brain at his home. Later the same month, Jack Ladd who was the guy that put up the Pinkerton guy in his house and thought he was working for him, or was in cahoots with, or conspired with... Uh, my mistake. Dan Askew, the guy that sheltered Jack Ladd, was found with a bullet in his brain in his home, and later the same month, Jack Ladd, the Pinkerton spy, was found also conveniently and coincidentally shot and killed. After moving around for a while, Jesse and his cousin wife... Jesus. So would that make him to his kids like second uncle daddy? I think so. They welcomed their first child on August 31st, 1875, on a leased farm near Waverly, Missouri. Jesse and Z used aliases. Thomas and Mary Howard. Jesse dyed his light-colored hair dark and grew a beard to conceal his real identity as one of the most interesting rappers of all time, and that is Vanilla Ice. Look up a picture of this motherfucker when he was an adult, because homeboy is Vanilla Ice. Hmm. He laid low for many months and took to farming with his wife, but not for long. It was at this farm where the plans for the Northfield, Minnesota raid were devised. The James brothers, along with the three younger brothers, two of the Quantrill Raider veterans named Clell Miller and Charlie Pitts and an outlaw named Billy Chadwell all traveled to the north. They were lured by old Bill's tales of easy pickings in the home state, right down to Jesse's alley. He liked the idea of taking on a northern bank. Planning on making Mankato their first target, Jesse was recognized and they had to bail from town quickly. 
They rode in pairs, and they headed to Northfield instead. Fifty miles to the northeast of where they originally had headed. They met on the outskirts of town on September 6th, 1878, and they cased the First National Bank, making plans to rob it first thing in the morning. This was two days before Jesse's 29th birthday. On September, the James, September 7th, the James Younger Gang attempted to rob the First National Bank in, in Northfield. That's what they were planning. The attempted robbery was to be the demise, however, of the infamous James Younger Gang. When ordered to open the safe, bank cashier Heyman refused to do so and ducked. Angered, Jesse dropped iron to his head and shot him. The shot was heard beyond the bank, and when the bank alarm began to go off in Northfield, citizens opened fire on the gang as they ran out of the bank. Charlie Pitts, Billy Chadwell were killed almost immediately. Cole, Jim, and Bob Younger were badly wounded but managed to flop onto their horses to escape. But they were captured a week later, just east of Mankato. The Younger brothers were sentenced to life terms in prison. Frank and Jesse escaped back to Missouri unmolested. You fucking cunts. On February 6th, 1878, Frank and Annie James, his not-cousin wife, give birth to Robert James on the 17th of June. Jesse and his cousin, his wife, gave birth to a daughter they named Mary Susan, who was born in Nashville, Tennessee, where Jesse and Z stayed with Frank and Annie for a while. They uh, replaced their old squad with new gang members, and the robberies continued over the next several years, including a stagecoach holdup near Mammoth Cave, Kentucky, and a bank robbery in none other than Muscle Shoals, Alabama, and a train robbery in Winston, Missouri. Shortly after the gang's last train robbery on September 7th, 81, in Glendale, Missouri, Jesse decided to move his family to St. Joseph, Missouri, renting a house on 1318 Lafayette Street. On December 24th, 1881, the family settled in it under Jesse's assumed name of Tom Howard. He had a $10,000 reward over his head still. Z tried to get Jesse to take on a normal life. She begged him. Cousin Daddy, she said, please take on a normal life. And Jesse agreed that he needed to, right after one last great, great huge bank robbery in Platte County, Missouri. This just plays like a Grand Theft Auto game, dude. This is like Grand Theft Auto San Andreas 1870. Jesse finally decided to retire, hopefully with enough money to make him a gentleman farmer, like Herschel from The Walking Dead, and less like Vanilla Ice. Planning the robbery with Bob and Charles Ford, whom Jesse had worked with in the past, the Ford brothers visited the James home in St. Joseph on the morning of the 3rd of April, 82, outlining his plans for the robbery with Bob and Charlie in the parlor of his home. Jesse noticed that a framed needlepoint picture done by his mother was hanging at an unpleasant and ungodly angle on the wall. Standing on a chair to adjust the picture, Jesse turned slightly as he heard the sound of Robert Ford's cocked pistol, at which point Robert shot Jesse just below the right ear, and Jesse fell to the floor dead at 34 years old. Well, you can't win them all. You gotta know when to hold them. You gotta know when to fold them. As I said, it said that Jesse when his gang was annihilated, trusted only the Ford brothers. But he had only been out on raids with Charlie, the uh, the older brother. And Robert Sneak Attack Ford was an eager new recruit. 
So for protection, James asked the Ford brothers to move in with him and his family. Jesus Christ. James had often stayed with their sister, Martha Bolton, and according to the rumor, was smitten with her. But he was already married to his cousin's bride. John didn't know that Robert Ford had been conducting secret negotiations with Thomas T. Crittenden, the Missouri governor, to bring him the famous outlaw. Crittenden had made the capture of Jesse James, the brothers, the Jesse James brothers, his top priority, had made the capture of the James brothers his top priority in his inaugural address. He declared, There are no political motives that could be allowed to keep them from justice. Barred by law from offering a sufficiently large reward, he had turned to railroad and express corporations to put up a $5,000 bounty for each one of them. Loophole bitch. He should have been a lawyer. On April 3rd, 1882, after eating breakfast, they prepared to depart for the train robbery. They went into the house, and they... They went in and out of the houses to ready the horses. As it was an unusually hot day, James removed his coat, then declared that he should remove his firearms as well, lest he look suspicious. Noticing the dusty picture after taking off his jacket, he stood up on a chair to clean it when Bob was shot in the back of the head. Uh, James' two previous bullet wounds and a partially missing middle finger served to identify the body. But the murder of Jesse James became a national sensation. The Fords made no attempt to hide their role. Indeed, pussy-ass Robert Sneak Attack Ford wired the governor to claim his reward. Crowds pressed into the little house in St. Joseph to see the dead bandito. Even while the Ford brothers surrendered to the authorities, but they were dismayed to find that they were also charged with first-degree murder. Suck a dick, Bob Ford. In the course of a single day, the Ford brothers were indicted, pled guilty, sentenced to death by hanging, and in two hours granted a full pardon by Governor Crittenden. That fucking asshole. The governor's quick pardon suggests that he knew the brothers intended to kill James rather than capture him. Like many who knew James, the Ford brothers never believed it was practical to try to take him in custody. The implication that the chief executive of Missouri conspired to kill a private citizen startled the public, and it added to Jesse James' notoriety. After receiving a small portion of the reward, the Fords fled Missouri. Law enforcement officials active in the plan also shared the bounty. Later, the Ford brothers starred in a touring stage show in which they reenacted the shooting of Jesse James. Suffering from tuberculosis, which was then incurable, and a morphine addiction, once again, typical good time shit, Charlie Ford shot himself in the head on May 6th in Richmond, Missouri. Good. Robert Ford opened a tent saloon in Creed, Colorado. On July 8th, 1892, a man named Edward O. Kelly went to Creed on a personal vendetta with avenging Jesse James. He loaded himself a double-barreled shotgun, entered Ford's saloons, and said, Hello, Bob, before giving Bob both barrels in the throat, killing him almost immediately, severing his head. O'Kelly was sentenced to life in prison, but it was commuted because of a 7,000-signature petition in favor of his release, so the governor pardoned him in 1902. James' mother, old Z. Samuel, wrote the following epitaph for her son, Jesse James. Carved in his tombstone. In loving memory of my beloved son, murdered by a traitor and coward whose name is not worthy to appear here. 
James Widow Z dies alone and in poverty. Wow. So, what notable death story would be complete without a conspiracy of survival? Rumors of Jesse James' survival proliferated almost as soon as newspapers announced his death. Some said that Robert Ford killed somebody other than James in an elaborate plot to allow his friend and mentor to escape justice. These tales have received little credence, however, then or later. None of James' biographers have accepted them as plausible. The body buried in Kearney, Missouri, as Jesse James was exhumed in 1995 and subject to DNA testing, was, in fact, Jesse James because of the relatives in the family line, and they were still alive. But the theme resurfaced in a 2009 documentary titled Jesse James' Hidden Treasure, which aired on the History Channel. The documentary was dismissed as pseudo-history and pseudo-science by actual historian Nancy Samuelson in a review that she wrote for Winter 2009-2010 edition of the James Younger Gang Journal. Man, are they like fucking Tupac putting out journals after they die? And I quote, One prominent claim was J. Frank Dalton, who died in August 15, 1951 in Granbury, Texas. Allegedly, he was 101 years old at the time of his first public appearance. In May of 48, his story did not hold up the questioning from James' surviving relatives. I also found an entire website dedicated to uh, this fucking nonsense. The Frank J. Dalton shit. The Frank J. Dalton is inextricably tied to the history of the Merrimack Caverns and Jesse James, which is... The Merrimack Caverns are, are a roadside attraction made famous by Route 66, which is the mother road that runs across this, this country of America. It linked Chicago to Los Angeles, inspired songs, stories, countless road trips, captured the imagination of Americans, uh, and pretty much now has fallen into decrepit ruin, and it's filled with ghost towns. It's badass. But this fucking guy alleged that he lived in the cave, he was Jesse James. Yeah, okay. Merrimack Caverns became known as the safest bomb shelter in the world. Interesting. I'm just, okay, this is horseshit, and it's no wonder that they never gave it any credit. So, James turned to crime after the end of the Reconstruction era helped cement his place in American life and memory as a simple but remarkably effective bandito. After 73, he was covered by national media for, for his social banditry. Just goes to show you that there is no such thing as bad press. There is, but it's still just going to make you famous. During his lifetime, he was celebrated chiefly by former Confederates and Southern people to whom he appealed directly. In his letters to the press, displaced by Reconstruction, the antebellum political leadership mythologized the James Gang exploits. A man named Frank Triplett wrote about James as a progressive neo-aristocrat with purity of race. I think that means he was a poor white guy that was really white. In some historians' credit, James Myth as contributing to the rise of former Confederates to, uh, to dominance in Missouri politics. For example, both U.S. Senators from the state, Confederate Military Commander Francis Cockrell and Confederate Congressman George Graham Vest are identified 
as former Confederate politicians. Okay, I don't care. In the 1880s, after James' death, the James Gang became the subject of dime novels that represented the bandits as pre-industrial models of resistance. During the populist and progressive eras, James became a symbol of America's Robin Robin Hood, predominantly to Southerners, standing up against the man in defense of the small Southern farmer that was being pissed on by the massive Union Army's dick. Robbing from the rich and giving to the poor, which there is no evidence of, his robberies never went to anybody other than himself and his squad. But they attacked small banks, which did benefit the local farmers. In portrayals in the 1950s, James was pictured as a psychologically troubled individual rather than a social rebel, a disturbed war veteran. Some filmmakers portrayed the former outlaw as a revenger, replacing social with exclusively personal motives. James remains a controversial symbol, one who can always be interpreted in a variety of ways. According to cultural tensions and needs, uh, some neo-Confederate movements regard him as a hero. Renewed cultural battles over the place of the Civil War in American history have replaced the long-standing interpretation of James as a Western frontier hero, though. Some people point to his absolute commitment to slavery and his vow after the Civil War to shoot any black in Missouri not fulfilling the role of a slave. That's fucked up. I didn't know that. While his heroic outlaw image is still commonly portrayed in films as well as songs and folklore, recent historians place him as a self-aware vigilante and terrorist who used local tensions to create his own myth among the widespread insurgent guerrilla vigilantes fighting following the American Civil War. These days... Defeat of Jesse James Day in in Northfield, Minnesota is among the largest outdoor celebrations in the state and is held annually in September during the weekend after Labor Day. Thousands of visitors watch reenactments of a robbery, a championship rodeo, a carnival, performances of a 19th century style melodrama musical, and a parade during a five-day fucking event. Unbelievable, my God. Jesse James' boyhood home in Kearney, Missouri is now a museum dedicated to the town's most famous resident. Each year, a recreational fair, the Jesse James Festival, is held at this location during the third week of September. During Labor Day weekend, Victorian Festival at the 1866 Colonel William H. Fulkerson Estate, Hazeldale in Jersey County, Illinois, Jesse James' history is told and the stories and reenactments of stagecoach holdups are happening over the course of a three-day event. Thousands of spectators learn of the documented James Gang's stopping point at Hazeldell and their connection with ex-Confederate Fulkerson. Man, there are a lot of people that celebrate this guy. In addition, the annual Tobacco and Heritage Festival in Russellville features a reenactment of their robbery of the Southern Bank. Wow. Unbelievable. It should come as no surprise that, as with most famous people... Many people claim to be related to this guy. And this is one of my favorite stories because it's poetic justice for one of the people loosely involved in this man's life. Let me... I'm going to end this episode, part two, the end of the uh, Jesse James podcast, on this whimsical note. So, I'm sure you guys are aware of Jesse Gregory James also known as Jesse James of West Coast Choppers, also known as the ex-husband of Sandra Bullock, um, uh, maker now known as the Pope of Welding, 
maker of Jesse James Firearms. He makes a nice gun. I'll give him that. He makes a nice motorcycle, too. I may disagree with some aspects of his personal life. Considerably. But he's a talented man when it comes to craftsmanship. Before 2005 and early in his development as a celebrity, Jesse Gregory James publicly claimed to be a relative of America's iconic outlaw, Jesse Woodson James. His claims were then denied by the James Preservation Trust, which addresses the history and the direct genealogy of the Jesse James family. On August 9th, 2009, in an interview with SidewalksTV.com, he once more stated his claim. The trust previously invited Jesse James to provide his family genealogy and a DNA sample for the trust's review. Uh, his invitation was not accepted. It remains open, though. Jesse Gregory James is not only a fraud, he also appears to be a thief. Emma Parker Bowles talks about her encounter with James on FinancialMaleWomen'sForum.com, where she moved to Hollywood from England. When she moved from Hollywood to England. I came over here with the idea of doing a motoring show. I had teamed up with Jesse James, motorbike builder, blue collar hero, and Mr. Sandra Bullock. But when we went to meet him, my agent Stephen was obsessed with Sandra Bullock, and we both spotted at the same time a framed photo of him of her on his desk. Can't do that for long. Steven started hyperventilating with excitement. What the fuck? And I had to kick him under the table to bring him back. Jesse and I were going to do this awesome car show together, and I was going to ride to glory on his coattails. That was the plan. But in reality, he just took our pitch ideas and went off and did his own show. That's not fucking stealing if you pitch it to him without making him sign an NDA. You're a fucking moron. <sighs> there are entire websites dedicated to Jesse James not being related to Jesse James. <laughs> oh, man. Articles, too, apparently. A brazen liar from Landspeed Productions. Landspeed historian Louisa Ann Knoweth. Knowethall? I wish that was... <laughs> Challenged another claim made by Jesse James in 2009 in a taping for a television show. Jesse James is a dead man. The celebrity attempted to set a land speed record, and publicized he had done so. Noah throat claim is without merit, since the activities were conducted without benefit of any motorsport sanctioning authority. The vehicle was neither inspected nor certified, and all timing personnel on the James TV payroll were there. Wow, she published the lengthy criticism. It's apparently, they have entire websites of all the lies that he has told in general. Wow, I like that. That's accountability right there. Uh. <laughs> Jesus Christ. Uh, so a man named Eric James is personally spearheading these fucking witch hunts against old uh, JGJ. <laughs> my goodness. I've also, uh, in my quest for just malicious shit to say about the other Jesse James, I found this website. I'm going to give you... I'm going to give this website to you. It is ericjames.org. And there is a section on it called Stray Leaves. And this is this man's compilation of all of the different families in the very long list of families that have come in contact with anything that may have touched Jesse James' genetic line. Uh, and they have a probably 2,000 surname long list. And you can go ahead and hunt for your name on there. I already found mine, and I already found... Um, 
just because this woman was named the same thing does not mean that I'm related to her, and I don't claim that, but woman, someone who shared my grandmother's name on that list. So that's, uh, that's interesting. It's, uh, it's, if nothing else, it's fun, and if you're interested in your family history, that's a better way to do it than spitting in a cup for the government to use later to frame you for murder. I am not advertising for 23andMe. And on that note, this has been another exciting episode of Anthology of Horror, ad-free, guaranteed, the entire time. I want to thank all the regular listeners for tuning back in. I want to thank the new guys, or girls, for checking it out and sticking through it. I know I can be overbearing at times, but thank you very much. If you feel that I deserve it, please do not hesitate to rate me five stars on the iTunes store. It will just make it a little bit easier for me to quit my terrible fucking job at some point down the road. I made a Patreon. I don't know what that means, but I made one. I don't know how to give it to you. I don't expect you to find it, but I made one. Next is a fucking email address, so you guys don't have to in- you don't have to message me on Instagram. However, since I have an open door policy and I don't have an email address yet, please do not hesitate to get in touch with me on Instagram.com slash DukeLandis17. That's Instagram.com slash Duke, D-U-K-E, like Duke Landis, L-A-N-D-I-S, 1-7 as in 17, and that's on Instagram. I would love to hear how stupid I am. I would love to hear your complaints, your hate mail. Um, whatever offensive thing I've said this week, I'd love to hear it all. I have an open door policy. If you feel that I could be doing something better, please don't hesitate to reach out. If you don't tell me, I'm not going to fucking fix it. I am here for you guys, and you guys are the only reason I've continued to do this. Um, that and every time I get a new listener, it strokes my fucking ego, and I'm appreciative of that too. So please... Continue to spread the word, because I have seen parts of the map slowly lighting up in regions. Texas is the fucking champion of that, so thank you, Galveston, Texas, because that seems to be where it originated from. It's appreciated. Please continue to tell your friends and family, because they seem to listen to you. And uh, New Jersey, thank you very much as well. Thank you to all my listeners. Realistically, I appreciate you all. Please continue to check back in, and please don't hesitate to get in touch with suggestions for episodes what I could be doing better, I'm here for you, and I take constructive criticism well. So, in the meantime, until next time, stay spooky.